Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, everyone, and hello, and welcome back to the New Books and French Studies podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bridget Wallace, your host. Today, we I have the privilege and honor of interviewing Dr. Alyssa Goldstein Sippenwell. She is the author of The Abbe Gregoire and the French Revolution, The Making of Modern Universalism. It was um, University of California Press in 2005. This is a very beautifully written biography. It's based on newly discovered and previously overlooked material. And for the first time, we really gain access to the complexity of the Abbe's life and the role he played in the French Revolution. Dr. Sippenwell is a professor of history at California State University, San Marcos, and a specialist in French and Haitian history. Um, in addition, she has written books about Haitian slave society, and she has written numerous articles on French and Haitian history. And I am very, very lucky since I study French and Haitian history. So this is really going to be wonderful. So welcome, Dr. Sippelwell. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me today, Bridget. And you can call me Alyssa. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, Alyssa, um, I just want to start and let you introduce yourself to the audience and talk to us about your research, especially about your two guiding principles in your personal life that kind of led you to this scholarship. Yes, I did read your blog. <laughs> I, I have to remember what were the two guiding principles, but my name is Alyssa Goldstein Seppenwall. I'm professor of history at California State University, San Marcos. I've taught there for 23 years here in Southern California after doing my doctorate at Stanford. And this book grows out of that um, doctorate. So for me, it was my first book, um, although University of California reissued it in paperback in 2021, because they decided that the story of an anti-racist priest who was a friend of Haitians was a story ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it very much was a story ahead of its time. Um, we have actually been studying it in class and applying actually t- t- um, to current events that's happening right now. Um, so, um, but tell us, so explain your um, French scholarship, your Haitian scholarship, and how you tied all of that together. And your two principles that you um, refer to are universalism and particularism. Right. right. So the way that I got to this book, I was studying the Enlightenment as an undergraduate um, and looking at the Enlightenment and the French Revolution in kind of more old fashioned, old school ways. But I was really interested also in issues of identity in the modern state and multiculturalism. And so I started to think about also the way um, states treat minoritized groups whether it's people minoritized because of their religion, um, their skin color, or their gender. And so while I was trying to decide what to work on, I thought, okay, I'd like to work (laughs) on 
um, the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, but it would also be good to work on Jewish history. Jews were mistreated in the 18th century, um, but they were so-called emancipated by the French Revolution. I'd love to work on slavery and Black history. I'd love to work on gender. How can I do all of these things together? Right. And so the first dissertation topic that I tried, Bridget, was comparing debates in the French Revolution um, about Black people, Jews, and um, women. And my advisor was a little worried <laughs> because he thought <laughs> it's a lovely question, but how are you going to rein that in in terms of the archives? There's a huge amount of cartons and boxes on each of those topics. Right. And so while I was working on it and kind of spinning my wheels, um, my second advisor, Aaron Rodrigue, said, you really should do a biography of the Abbe Gregoire. And I said, the Abbe Gregoire, <laughs> that white <laughs> priest who wanted to convert Jews, why would I want to write a biography on him? But I gave the idea a try, and I spent one week doing nothing but reading Abbe Gregoire things. And at the end of the week, I realized he's totally right. Because here's someone who was alive for 81 years, who lived before the French Revolution, right, and then stayed alive afterwards. Mm -hmm. And he worked on so many different topics, mm -hmm. um, from being the so-called friend of Blacks and Jews, mm -hmm. to um, working on language politics. Um, he also, unfortunately, was a misogynist um, in yeah. general and didn't think yeah. women should be. And I thought, this is such an interesting topic and will allow me to work on all of these different issues. But coming back to universalism and particularism, I realized this was really a way to look at how has France and other modern nation states treat a difference. For the right. Abbe Gregoire and for the French Revolution, you could be included, you could be part of France, but you were supposed to give up your difference and regenerate yourself. And that just seems so relevant to the challenge that I had in my life um, as the descendant of Ashkenazi Jews trying to hold <laughs> on to my culture. And I had yeah. friends who were from lots of different cultures and figuring out how right. do you code switch or yeah, what are the things exactly. you do to hold on to your culture, but then yeah. be deemed okay in right. mainstream society. So I, it was, it was a really good topic for me to be working on and thinking through those issues. Yeah. I think um, this legacy, his legacy of regeneration is so poignant right now. Um, and it not only crosses into European um, country, states, and nations, it's also Latin America, Hispanic, because we're, um, I, I'm TA, a Native American class. And this idea, you can be inclusive, but right. you have to look like me. Right. And I'm, I don't, when you were reading through his works and his memoirs and his decrees and letters that he wrote, did you get a sense of how he thought to deny someone's individuality for the greater good that that made sense? I, I, I've read your book a couple of times because I told you it's part of my research. And um, I'm trying to understand how Robespierre, Gregoire, how the Committee of Public Safety, even the French Revolution, how did assimilating difference by whitewashing it make sense? I don't, I yeah. just don't understand that. Yeah. So 
I'll start by saying I have very complicated feelings about Gregoire. Sometimes I'm like, go, go, tell them. Um, right. And then other times he drives me up the wall. And certainly as a, an opinionated woman, mm -hmm. um, he probably would have not liked me in many ways. Although the yeah. fact that we share a commitment to helping people in Haiti and some right. other things, he might have thought I was okay sometimes. Right. Um, but he, you know, the thing about him is that he was a sincere Catholic mm -hmm. and he believed that other people who were not Catholic would not be saved. And so he thought that he was helping other people who were in the wrong. And okay. so in that way, he's different from a more secular revolutionary like Robespierre, who right. I've also written about. And so Gregoire viewed his idea about the Jews, and this is one of the things that gives me very mixed feelings about him. And mm -hmm. I, I certainly wanted to point out that he was not just a friend of the Jews, as many people say, that he criticized Judaism. He mocked Judaism. Mm -hmm. um, he said some really terrible things about the Jews of his time, yeah. yeah. early in his life. Yeah. And so he just had this view that these groups whether it was Jews or Black people in the Caribbean, had been mistreated, and this had caused them to be degenerate. And if you stopped mistreating them and allowed them to learn the beauties of Christianity, then they could be, uh, you know, regenerated. Then they could be perfect. So I, I have in the third chapter of my book, it's a little clunky, but I lay out kind of the landscape for talking about Jews in the 18th century, and I think it works for other groups. I say that there were people who were impossibilists. They said it was impossible to ever include the Jews in the nation because they were so other. These people were like modern anti-Semites and said Jews can't be loyal citizens. They're terrible people. So those people argued can't ever include them. And Gregoire opposed them. He disagreed, and that was a lot of other Catholics. And they, you know, used terrible names for him. They called him a Jew lover or, you know, things right. like this. And so right. he said, no, no, they're, you know, they can become just like us if we stop mistreating them and if they stop believing their crazy beliefs. And he said, if we include them in the nation, um, then they can change. Um, I point out, though, because sometimes people had said, oh, that's the progressive position <laughs> in the 18th century. Right. And I say, no, there were people. So we've got the impossibleists who okay. say you can't include them. You've right. got Gregoire, who I call a conditionalist. Right. You can include them on condition that they're going to regenerate themselves, right? They'll show thanks by learning right. more about Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are people who are unconditionalists. And I would put Robespierre in that category and, mm -hmm. and Jews themselves who said mm -hmm. the Declaration of the Rights of Man says... All men are, are born created. and remain right. free and equal. We right. are men. And right now I'm talking about males, the issue. Right. So we should be citizens. There doesn't need to be anything different. Men are citizens. We should be citizens. And of course, then you're going to have um, free Black people from the Caribbean, like Julien Raymond, who'll make the same argument. The Declaration of the Rights of Man says all men are born and remain free and equal. We are men. Therefore... Right. So I did want to point out that Gregoire had this middle position um, and he certainly was committed to including um, groups 
like Jews and enslaved people and free blacks in the Caribbean. But he um, expected <laughs> that they would reverse the so-called degeneration that they had um, developed as a result of racism and anti uh, anti-Semitism wasn't the word then, but prejudice. Well, I think um, the Jewish population faced the same um, obstacle that the free black people of color face. Mm. And it was this, what was the Ashkana Jews that yeah, he really didn't, yeah. right, that um, they were kind of sidelined a little bit from the mainstream Jews. And for free persons of color, they sidelined enslaved mm -hmm. persons of color. Um, and I don't know if, I know he kind of fought for the, um, say it again, Ashiana. Ashkenazi. Mm -hmm. Ashkenazi Jews. There he we go. fought for them, but he didn't really fight for the slavery. Even though in his, um, one of his um, statements I read, um, that he didn't believe in slavery because he was a member of this society mm -hmm. uh, for their means, but he still didn't fight for them to be part of the Declaration of the Rights of Citizens and Men. And can you explain that sure. dynamic? Yeah, the thing is that at that time, there was not really anyone in the National Assembly who was arguing for abolishing slavery in 1789. Right. Right. You had these white abolitionists who were kind of gradual. And mm -hmm. also you had such fierce entrenched opponents of equality mm -hmm. um, for free free people of color in the Caribbean that mm -hmm. they just said, okay, first, we're not gonna talk about slavery. Let's just first talk about equality for free people of color. Right. And they started with that. And you have Robespierre, who does that at the beginning too, like Gregoire. Um, and again, it's because of this belief that enslaved people had been degraded by slavery. So Gregoire had this belief that um, enslaved people were not inherently debased, but that the horrible treatment that they had faced and the way that the immoral, horrible <laughs> enslavers treated them Right. Had, and they just weren't, quote unquote, ready for freedom yet. And so it, part of it is, did they really feel at the beginning that slavery um, was crucial? There were just so many issues that they were dealing with in 1789. Mm -hmm. Gregoire wrote in a, an early thing, there are people who care more about people of color 3,000 leagues across the sea than they do about I, Jews in their backyard. I read that. And, yeah. <laughs> I think it was once he started to meet free people of color, like mm -hmm. Julien Raymond, and mm -hmm. said, well, here's a person. He's right. And, then he, and I guess this is exactly like I've been arguing for the Jews. And then mm -hmm. he pivoted and he became mm -hmm. a champion also of the free people of color. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, he met Ramon, he met OJ too, Vincent OJ. He met him too. Um, but um, when talked about the enslaved, then there was a, um, in the Western side of Haiti, um, Monsieur Penche, who was opposed OJ. He didn't want to accept the declaration just at face value. It was a group of free people of color who pushed back 
against Ramon and OJ was there. Uh, that amazed me, but it did. It made sense to me because I'm always thinking. You think that because um, they're fruit, they're per persons of color. So someone is saying that now you you're equal among men. They're not just going to accept enlightenment language of liberty or citizenship mm -hmm. just in front face because, like you said. They have built these relationships, albeit tenuous, they still wanted to keep them. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just the dynamics. Because what I like about this book is, is that um, it has, from his beginning in his childhood and the way he studied his religion and the place from where he comes to how he went from the cure um, and his different, how he went up the religious ladder. In other words, and because in the beginning, it looks like to me, he really just didn't care about his religion you uh -huh. know, at all. He just uh -huh. wanted he was just there to get all the privileges that he could get and to be just the space the baseball as he wanted to be. Um, so what was his flip? What I know it was when he was a curate at Ebermau, mm -hmm. Um, Was that the point? Was that the point of origin that caused him all of a sudden to start to pull everything together and flip? I'm going to go back for one second, just if I can. I do mm -hmm. want to say that even though he wasn't arguing um, for ending slavery per se, he mm -hmm. still was really fiery in calling out enslavers and saying mm -hmm. this needed to end. There's a speech that he gave. I was just looking on my bookshelf, but I can't mm -hmm. grab it quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's in a collection by David Gegis, the French Revolution in yeah. history. And mm -hmm. there's this speech that he gives where he basically tells off enslavers, it's from 1790 or 1791. Okay. And he says, basically, like eat grass and be just, <laughs> meaning like give up sugar, you don't need it for slavery. It's better mm -hmm. if you're poor and you're not enslaving people. And he okay. got so much hate from this. Okay. From who said like, you know, want to compare it to like um, AOC or something even more where he gets demonized mm -hmm. for being someone who wants to just, you know, overthrow the colonial system. Right. Um, so I, I do want to, again, I told you I have a mixed relationship. <laughs> I think. Critical, but it's important to keep that too. Okay. So mm -hmm. how does he get to Jews and how does he um, get to talking about people of color? So it's not simply that he just had this great social conscience and wanted to help people. And mm -hmm. I was really struck by this, Bridget, as I reread the book mm -hmm. in preparation to talk to you today, because mm -hmm. I remember, I mean, I wrote it, and I remember, <laughs> but, I, but I've been working on other things. So there's certain elements that didn't stick in my mind as much. Mm -hmm. And I just was struck again to remember how ambitious he was. He was mm -hmm. a guy from the countryside. A lot of priests mm -hmm. came from wealthy families. Maybe the priest was the third son in the right. family, but he was a very rare scholarship kid right. who became a priest. And he was really smart. And so he had all kinds of ambitions and mm -hmm. he wanted to become famous like mm -hmm. a lot of young men in the 18th century. And so he did what a lot of them did was to enter essay contests sponsored yeah. by Royal Academies and hope you'd win. And then all the famous people would know about you. That was a really a way to like, mm -hmm. you know, make it. Yeah. Make it. Yeah. Um, so the first contest he entered, it might not have been the first, but he enters a poetry contest. Yeah. And he oh, yeah. Really sappy mm -hmm. thing um, that later he was embarrassed about as a priest. He said he shouldn't have been using all of this romantic language. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but he enters different contests and then he enters one that are, it was basically, it was, it was kind of, again, an anti-Jewish premise. How do we save peasants from Jewish users? Right. That's, I so remember that. Yeah. He enters that one. Mm-hmm. And then, um, later the Royal Academy of Mets has a contest in 1785. Mm-hmm. How can we make the Jews of France more useful and more happy? And um, I've argued that the entry, the famous entry that the Abbe Gregoire puts in was a revision of the old one from the other mm-hmm. contest. And so mm-hmm. he kind of dusts it off and revises it. And there, although that's famous as um, an entry in which he wanted to help Jews, there's really a lot of critical stuff in there where he basically seems to think that his peasants um, are suffering under Jewish usury and the Jewish religion is stupid. Um, And at first the Academy decides that no one won (laughs) and they ask people to redo it. And at that point, Gregoire thinks, oh, I really want to win this contest. And he starts to meet some Jews. (laughs) He finds some Jews to talk to. And then he starts to feel a little bad (laughs) and he puts in some footnotes apologizing (laughs) to new friends. Oh, Um, wow. But it, it, you know, when you meet other people and you've had ideas about them, I think it starts to change you. And even though Gregoire still had this idea, okay, their religion is stupid, they need mm-hmm. to convert to Christianity, he started to recognize that they were real people. And um, yeah, he starts to argue for including them as equal citizens. And then, as I said, he meets Julien Raymond, and then he decides and you know he he really was courageous even though i'm talking about him as being ambitious he really you know we say today i can say this on yen he did not give a f (laughs) he just said (laughs) i'm gonna argue for these groups and if people want to say nasty things about me it doesn't matter because i think this is right yeah now if i learned anything from um your writing of him that's what i learned i learned that he I felt that he was consistent to himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt that um, he went out when he got finally got to um, Emma Merrill and got the curate was at the parish. And you talk about how he started to help his parishioners, mm-hmm. how he was working with the peasants and the rural farmers and how he was helping them. Um, I was reading about um, how he was a person that soaked up knowledge like a sponge. You talk about um, in one in his relationship about languages, how that came about. Um, Oberlin, um, trans- language transforming the countryside. We watched a movie, um, kind of sort of a satire about um, Gregoire, um, but um, we could see how um, he. It's like. He will place himself in situations in his mind to try to think that he's going to get things done. Ridicule. That's what we watched. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and um, but throughout the work, every place, every space that he entered, he learned something from it. And then he took that knowledge and created a bigger knowledge. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. He was yeah. always learning and yeah. evolving. And I think sometimes he was self-righteous. Um, oh, yeah. I think definitely there's a little narcissism in here. <laughs> he thought he was right. Definitely. But um, 
one of the things that um you said about him is the fact that he didn't believe that Paris really had a traditional language, traditional Christian um, religion, that he just thought it was a religion based on whatever the wind swept in um, at the time. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, definitely. He certainly thought that there were a lot of people who were not practicing. And so mm -hmm. even in the National Assembly, um, mm -hmm. He, right, he's encountering a lot of people who we thought were not faithful. And then later in his life, um, one of his last big works was called um, The History of Religious Sects, Histoire des Sects Religieuses. And it really is an effort for him to argue that everyone else is wrong on religion, but they can still embrace the one true faith, which is a kind of enlightened Christianity. He did think that the kind of Catholicism that was practiced by the bishops at mm -hmm. his time was mm -hmm. not really the religion of Jesus. So he was part of a movement that was mm -hmm. trying to bring the religion back to its origins and really help the poor more and not mm -hmm. be something where you had wealthy bishops enjoying the tithes mm -hmm. of their parishioners to live in big palaces. Yeah. Um, yeah. That And that was a problem in the French Revolution, this idea of overwhelming Catholic religion. Um, being a former um, African-American Catholic, I can understand that completely. That's why I'm not there now. But um, anyway, but here's my thing, though. So he became a deputy um, within the French Revolution, became a member of the Committee of Public Safety. Did he do that because he felt that his regeneration... Um, ideology, he could best push it out from that space because when when you went there, I was a little shocked. I didn't think that he, I thought he was going to stay where he was at and just kind of go up the parishional ladder. So was it because the um, French Revolution with this idea of constitutional cleric um, versus just direct religious cleric is that he took this opportunity to try to push everything that was inside of him that he wanted to push out. Is that why he made that transition? So again, he was really idealistic and ambitious. So mm -hmm. when there were elections to send people to the National Assembly as representative of the clerics, he wanted mm -hmm. to run. And he also, it was part of a revolt against the bishops that this should be this true church, WWJD, right? Gregoire didn't mm -hmm. have hashtags, but mm -hmm. to make it uh, a church that was more committed to the poor. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was really happy to get elected. And then he shows up in Paris mm -hmm. and the bishops are just not wanting to do the things that the third estate wanted. And Gregoire is like, let me in there. And <laughs> he, he became an ally with the third estate and is trying to argue that the rest of the clergy, um, and it was it was scandalous. I, I quote in the book a letter from someone back home who heard that Gregoire was calling out his bishop, which was totally against the hierarchy. Yeah. Um, and people were scandalized, but Gregoire liked this idea that you didn't just have to be deferential to powerful people and that you could remake society. Um, so he just starts becoming more and more important. And as I said, just like Robespierre, he was a really fiery orator. And when Gregoire wanted to go off on something, I mean, I look at some of these sentences he wrote were just <laughs> that, and it's, it's amazing. He just was such a lively speaker. Um, and so he eventually, not the Committee of Public Safety, but the Committee of Public Instruction, he gets mm -hmm. on that. And that's going to be a way to totally revamp 
education and the way people right. are brought up in France. Right. Um, and he, he loved that committee. Wow. So let's go um, back a little bit to this idea of biography because um, we have their memoirs, diaries, letters that people have written about them. A couple of questions. Um, and you talked about this idea of writing a biography that you had to rap, grapple with that. Um, I didn't want to put out a passe type biography. You know, they're out here a mile a minute. But when you went through the archives of him, how did they speak to you for you to speak for him in this work? Well, I don't want to say I speak for him because sometimes I'm highlighting, you know, things that he wouldn't have liked and, and um, places where maybe he didn't step up as he should. But yes, I went to graduate school in the 90s. We were all reading Foucault and mm. other things and doing a biography of a dead white man, a dead white Christian man just seemed like a terrible thing, especially because I was interested. I thought about writing an intellectual biography of Julien Raymond or some oh, other. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, I like it when people are answering back, <laughs> whether it was Jewish intellectuals or Mary Wollstonecraft talking okay. to Rousseau. Mm -hmm. And um, I realized, okay, sometimes you have to, you know, take it to the house or whatever. I've got to look at Gregoire, this mm -hmm. famous guy, to think mm -hmm. about these issues, to think about how France treated difference. Um, mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I was re as I was reading, I was like, some of these things I love, some of these things I love to hate. Mm -hmm. And it just, I, I thought, you know, I'm having a lot of fun reading this guy. And again, sometimes things are resonating and sometimes things I didn't like at all. Mm -hmm. So I realized that if I really wanted to deal with these big issues, and I had so many big issues, I went through graduate school and my undergraduate career. What's the relationship of the Enlightenment to the French Revolution? Why did the French Revolution happen? Why did the French Revolution radicalize from this nice, harmonious 1789 to the revolutionaries turning on each other. Um, why did the revolution fail? Um, what happens to revolutionary idealism afterwards? These were all really, what's the relationship between um, revolutionary ideology about people freeing themselves and then that France has this so-called civilizing mission where they're gonna invade people for their own good. And I realized, wow. <laughs> People have been have been telling me I need to settle down and pick one thing to work on. But I oh, they tell you that too. Oh yes, yes, Bridget. <laughs> I remember a staff person on campus. Who said, you really need to just pick one of these things. And I saw Gregoire, and it was like a Peter Pan topic. I wouldn't have to grow up. I could keep working on all of these things. And mm -hmm. so the way I organize the biography, it's chronological. Yeah. The first part looks at his youth before the revolution. The second mm -hmm. part looks at the revolution. Okay. And the third part looks at what happens after the revolution until 1831. But mm -hmm. each section tackles big issues. So the first section, mm -hmm. um, what's the relationship of the Enlightenment to the French Revolution? And mm -hmm. was the Enlightenment really anti-religious? That's kind of the image we have from Voltaire, that the Enlightenment attacked the church. And so to discover you have lots of young priests like Gregoire who were involved in Enlightenment institutions and embraced Enlightenment ideas um, was something that was new. And then the second part, I could look more at revolutionary universalism mm -hmm. and the way that it included people. 
but mm -hmm. expected that they would change and give up their difference. Mm -hmm. And then the last section looks at this paradox of a revolution that gives people around the world, right? You've got Ho Chi Minh, Aimé Césaire, lots of people citing uh, the Declaration of the Rights of Man to argue mm -hmm. that they should have rights. And at the same time, um, uh, this ideology that Gregoire, I think that was one of his biggest impacts helps shape this idea of including people, but regenerating them. Um, that also helped justify colonialism as the, the French took over other places. So I think the revolution had a much more mixed legacy. Yeah, so that's some of the reasons that I decided to do biography, but I tried to do it differently and not just celebrate my great white hero, um, but also point out areas where he'd been inconsistent. I think um, Gregoire's um, static about being admitted into the Pantheon actually is symbolizes the static of the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. This mixed idea that um, did, was it the French Revolution that brought the um, philosophies and the idealism of the Enlightenment to the forefront? Was it this universal um, umbrella that everybody could stand under and push for whatever distinctive or succinctive um, freedoms and equality you were looking for. For me, it has always been, is France this space of liberty, fraternity, and equality? Mm -hmm. I have always, <clears throat> and had, that's the question. That's how I got to this place right here. But I think when you write about this idea's pantheonization of Gregoire in the epilogue, um, I think that pulls together everything that you have been talking about. It shows Francis' conundrum, especially how the Jewish nation started to turn against him, how people in Haiti started to turn against him. Um, it was three things. There it is. So in Elevating the Abbey, the government hoped to do three things. That's what you wrote on 224. That's what you wrote. The first one you said is that the revolution, people argued that the revolution had been bloodthirsty and was not worth celebrating. The um, Gregoire represented a peaceable and non-regisital non alternative to the revolution of Robespierre. Then the second one you say is that after decades of blows to French national identity from revelations about Vichy and other debilitating losses of France empire, Gregoire would help vindicate France by depicting that it was a source of universalistic ideas. And then um, the third one, I think that was the second and third one that you had wrote and that um, his remains, oh, were accompanied along the Rue Souffle by traditional clad woman from the Senegalese island of um, Gori. Um, and that his honor would reconcile the church and the republic. That's a powerful paragraph. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I really like the way you stated that, Bridget. So really, again, with the biography, I was trying to get at this question you asked, is France the land of liberty? Mm -hmm. And with Gregoire, you could really see that. On the one hand, they were putting him in the Pantheon in 1989 during mm -hmm. the bicentennial, right. um, 200 years of the revolution, the um, 
I'll just say for listeners who might not know that the French government picked three revolutionaries to put in. And again, it's a big deal. The Abbe Gregoire, as you were quoting from me, is not bloodthirsty Robespierre, although I have other thoughts on Robespierre than I've mm. written recently, but, you know, peaceful, anti-racist guy who is mm. also not against the church. And so he's the symbol of unity for the country and of the fact that it's the land of liberty. And the fact that there was still a lot of controversy shows you that this idea that France is the land of liberty is not so simple. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that some biographers, so the last chapter of my book, the epilogue, as mm. you said, looks at debates about Gregoire. And mm -hmm. some biographers wouldn't have included that because the point of a biography they might think is to show what someone's life was really like. But for me, the debates about him get to this issue of uh, his ideas about difference and the ideas that the French Revolution adopted, were they good or not? And he's kind of a flashpoint. And when I was rereading the book yesterday, Bridget, I got chills when I read the paragraph about the Nazis knocking his statue down mm. when they invaded Lunaville in World War II. Mm -hmm. That was just a reminder to me that as much as I might criticize aspects of him, the fact that he's an anti-racist symbol and even argued for helping the Jews at all was disgusting. And of course, there are still people today in the world who have those same feelings and would do the same thing again to people that they see as anti-racist. They think being anti-racism is something bad. So yeah. I wanted to include all of these debates to think about this issue that I end with at the end. France still has not figured out how to deal with difference because of this expectation that if people are French, that they should be the same. And you see that today in France in the demonization of immigrants mm -hmm. and controversies over um, Muslim women wearing the veil, that this is somehow anti-French. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that France still has not resolved, but of course it's not only the French. No, it's not just the French. And um, yeah, I read that section about um, the Nazis when he was in the Lower Valley knocking down evading his um, sanctuary. And um, I cried, you know, being um, African-American um, and watching what's going on now where we live, you know, this idea of um, symbolism and destroying, you think you can destroy um, symbols and people and ideas by knocking down something that's concrete, but you don't knock down the ideal, you don't knock down the policy because the policy is something that's mental and ingrained mm -hmm. in the person. Um, I like the biography because of your epilogue, because of the fact a traditional biography, and you're right, it's, it's all good, it's all good, and no one is all good. And I like the fact that as much as his regeneration ideology had this legacy, because it has a legacy, as much as it had a legacy, it had thorns in his legacy, but you weren't afraid to talk about those thorns. And those are the thorns that we need to talk about because a legacy is only as good as the interaction and as the thought process that a person coming behind is going to put to it. 
Um, it's just like Martin Luther King. His legacy is good because people still continually can debate it. It has controversy, but it provides this space of thought. It provides this space of reflection. And I think the one thing that I appreciate about the Abbey is that he gives us a space of reflection. Um, he gives this idea of um, balance. Um, we've been reading um, Sewell's um, article about what is a historical event. And my issue is, what is a historical person? What is a historical person? Is a historical person a one that's going to do something in within their time frame, but does that something fly down to different periods? As he says, a historical event, he does it in a particular space, but it can be applied to go down the centuries, go back to, I mean, he talked about the French Revolution, the storming of the Bastille, actually. So we can look at um, Gregoire's regeneration. It applied to World War One, World War Two, not only France, but to Africa, to um, India, to China, even to, you know, some parts of the United States. So what is a historical person? And if we look at a person like that, then we have to be able to look at the totality of the person. And you do a really, really good job of helping us look at the totalitarian one person. Can you talk to me though a little bit? Cause I know you've read it, his um, D lecture to the free people of color. Um, Can I that's just something go back for a moment? What you just said was very, mm -hmm. very rich. And mm -hmm. yes, I tried to talk about the thorns. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you that there were people <clears throat> in France and then maybe senior white gatekeepers in the field here who thought I was too hard on him. They said, oh, come on. Back then, he back then in his time, mm -hmm. he was the most anti-racist. And I tried to show sometimes he wasn't, right? When, <laughs> right, because Jews and free people of color were also men of his time mm -hmm. and they argued with him. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worthwhile to look at white anti-racists um, and to talk about their limitations sometimes. Mm -hmm, I'm sure mm -hmm. I have limitations also, and mm -hmm. it's worth highlighting them. I tried as much as I could to be nuanced in how I approached him and to give him his due, but then also to highlight areas where he maybe didn't live up to his own principles. He argued against racism and occasionally he came up with a racist idea like if whites right. and, and black people married that the new um, people would be stronger. Yeah, and lightning, <laughs> enlightening the race. Yeah, enlightening color right. of the race. Yeah. And so I, I think that now this idea of criticizing someone like that in 22 is more accepted. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's one reason that the book came out. But there were people who said, oh, you're a politically correct American. You're you're criticizing him, but people at the time didn't. So that's one reason as a deeply contextual intellectual historian, I tried to show. But there were people at the time who did and people in the 20s and in the 30s. And it's yeah. not just me doing this in oh. 2005. OK, mm -hmm. so. Um, you're asking me which which book some of he wrote 300 of them so some no, of them he wrote, I have his to letter read. to free people of color that he read in the national assembly the de la lettre that he wrote um that um author Schomburg had built his 
the Schaumburg yeah. Center around. Okay, so you might mean de la literature des nègres, which is from 1808. And so, oh, that's a that's a really um, important book. In in it, okay, so. Gregoire goes through the French Revolution. He's there when slavery is um, not there in person, but um, as slavery is abolished. And he is an abolitionist. And then in 1802, Napoleon decides to reinstate slavery. Right. And Gregoire is the senator. And uh, apparently Gregoire told Napoleon to his face, um, if I like... <laughs> wasn't looking at you I'd know that you were white <laughs> from the way that you're talking and mm -hmm. he, he disagreed with this sharply and mm -hmm. uh but there was censorship um as the Napoleonic regime went on and so he couldn't publish a book that says Napoleon sucks or why Napoleon okay. was wrong about slavery so he okay. publishes a book that's okay. called on the literature um if I use a more modern word of black people um de la oh, okay that's what it's called yeah Wait, so it's in 1808 right. and okay. against not just napoleon but thomas jefferson and other people who were racist at the time he says you say that black people are inferior um and that this is biological mm -hmm. how can this be i'm gonna lay out for you the literature of lots of african descended people whether mm -hmm. he's talking about Phyllis Wheatley or Alato Equiano or mm. other people. And mm. uh, again, he's specifically, how can we then look at Jefferson who says that they're inferior when we see all of these examples? So really the purpose of that was to lay out intellectual achievements of people of African descent and to argue, to use that to argue that slavery mm -hmm. is wrong. And that book has been really meaningful because um, remember, again, I'm interested in the legacy and how people have seen Gregoire. So for um, African-Americans in the Harlem Renaissance, there were a lot of people who liked Gregoire. Arturo mm -hmm. Schoenberg was one of them. And mm -hmm. he was a Caribbean immigrant from Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he was working uh, in Wall Street as a mail clerk. Mm -hmm. And he used the money that he saved up to try to buy from rare booksellers all of these books from uh, 18th century Black writers and to make a collection. And that eventually became the Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture in Harlem. But the basis for that, when he was looking around, he had Gregoire's book so he could check people off. And check make sure people off and find their work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. That, that is wonderful because I'm actually headed there next month for oh, some wonderful. research. Yeah, I'm headed there. I'm so excited. Wow. It, it, he... <laughs> You tie him in to so many different spaces. I'm a fan of Mark Block, and um, he would be proud because Mark Block says that history is nothing but the human interaction within the spaces that each interaction defines. And you place Gregoire in so many different spaces, but they're not wasted spaces. Does that make sense? They're not wasted spaces. They're very intentional space. Um, I looked at his life after the Third Republic, and he was still, now he's up against the religion, up against Catholicism, um, but still believing, though, that um, his central value system is still intact, and that it's always going to be intact, and that 
um, politicians and institutions are just grabbing at what they can grab to define themselves instead of letting the value and the moral define them. Um, is that like a holdover from- Yeah, well, one of the things that just has really struck me, <clears throat> reading this book again as I'm older <laughs> than I was, um, I was in my 20s and in my 30s when I did this dissertation in the book, um, and mm -hmm. I'm 52 now. So oh, I, was, wow. I was reading the book and I realized Gregoire was 52 when Napoleon reinstated slavery. And I understand completely how he felt. Here he mm. just been through this movement and it was exhilarating and they mm. were fighting for equality and all the forces um, who were against equality had been defeated and they mm. created a new society. And then all of a sudden- Here he comes. Like it's all changing and then there's a king again. And he yeah. can't believe that fellow Frenchmen are sitting still while they've lost democracy, which they just won. And so I really um, feel that there were, there were definitely things he changed over the course of his life, but he had a real belief that there shouldn't be a king, <laughs> that people should rule themselves, and that he did not change, um, you know, 1802 to 1831. And that's one reason he was kind of a, uh, oh no, <laughs> people laugh when I make analogies, but in some ways he's like Bernie Sanders. He's the cool old guy that the young people are looking to. That's a good um, analogy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, like, oh, that guy is like us. You know, the other old yeah. people, yeah. They're, they're not cool, they're backwards, but he's like us. And you have like, he's not even running for election and they write him in as a candidate in the late 1810s. Yeah. For yeah. the Senate. And the, the Senate said, no, we're not letting Gregoire be seated. <laughs> um, they, you know, they called him a regicide and said he'd voted to kill the king. But yeah, he 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 really stood for something. And that was trying to get a republic back. Yeah, he did. So tell us, as we coming to the end, what are you what are you doing now? What is your research about now? Where are you headed? Um and can I be your good friend? <laughs> <laughs> that would be lovely. So my second book was about um, Haitian history, and I wrote it after the earthquake. Mm -hmm. And obviously, from this book, you see, I was interested in Haiti, and mm -hmm. I wrote about the memory of the Haitian Revolution. Mm -hmm. But I, um, when the earthquake happened, I was watching people on TV in, in 2010, and they were so ignorant about Haiti, and they knew so little that I realized I needed to pivot. Even though I still work on France, I needed to write a book putting together Haitian history from the 18th century to the present so people okay. could understand how the international community had mistreated Haiti. Okay. So again, maybe that's something the Abbe Gregoire would have liked, that I was standing up for Haiti. Um, but one of the things that I've always been interested in, and this grows out of the epilogue also, is... Mm -hmm. Uh, depictions and representations. And so how Haitians and the Haitian Revolution have been depicted in film has been something I'm interested in. And then a student told me about a video game about slave resistance in colonial Haiti, Saint-Domingue. And I couldn't believe that this existed. And I explored it, a video game. And so I ended up my most recent book, which came out last year from Mississippi, is called Slave Revolt on Screen, The Haitian Revolution in Film and Video Games. And I looked at the ways that the Haitian Revolution has been depicted and the different ways that 
uh, white Europeans and Americans have depicted the revolution compared to Haitians and other people. Um, and part of that is also, I'm trying to amplify the idea that Haitians should be able to tell their own history, um, mm -hmm. which, right, as a principle <laughs> is something obvious, but given the poverty that has been imposed on Haitians for a variety of um, factors, um, it's the filmmaking capital is in Hollywood and Paris. So you've right. got Americans and French people who are telling this story on screen. Right. They're really yeah. trying that book to amplify the work that Haitians are doing and to get average viewers to try to seek out films by Haitians. Um, yeah, but it's also one of the very first books by a historian about historical video games and what wow. makes something a good video game. So that's what I've been working on. And I'm, I'm, I think I'm gonna keep working in that area for a little while. That sounds wonderful. I, I never would have thought a video game about the Haitian revolution. That just doesn't. I was shocked when the students told me and Bridget, I'll send you the, the trailers afterwards. But I also found yeah. that one of my favorite Caribbean writers, Patrick Chamoiseau, who mm -hmm. looks at the memory of slavery today and its legacy, he had worked on a video game, two of them actually in the late 1980s even though this was not discussed in scholarship. So having a chance to look at the Slave Revolt video games that he developed with the first Black woman game developer, um, Muriel Trami, was really amazing. So I have a whole chapter about their games. Okay, now I have, I've got to get the books. Okay, yes. <laughs> and there's, there's a new Books Network interview on that book that people can listen to also. Oh, okay. Yeah, I definitely will have to read that book because I, I never would um, have thought about that. Let me ask you um, a quick question before I let you go. Um, talk to me a little bit. Um, besides his um, association with Raymond, did he associate with any other free people of color or was Raymond the only one? No, I think that people would come to see him in Paris and they would come to see him for many years. <clears throat> and they also, he also was writing a lot of letters to Haitians. So okay. that was, that was something really wonderful to be able to find in the Bibliothèque de l'Arsenal in Paris was his correspondence with Haitians. Okay. All right. Now look, it was so wonderful talking to you. You are magnificent. Your work is, is just dynamic. You just, it's really dynamic. And I can just see your enthusiasm when you just talk about this. You are so passionate about this work. I hope you'll come again another time to talk with us and everyone have a great day. Everyone have a great day and this is Bridget Wallace and the New Books French Studies Network. Thank you.